Hi there. Here we are again. It's a beautiful, beautiful, freezing sunny day in Washington, D.C. I, I flew back last night from the United Kingdom where I've, I've developed this tradition, which is sort of a bad tradition in a way because I love Thanksgiving. But it's a chance for me to get to see my family, who, of course, don't celebrate it. But it gives me a week off and I can get to go see my mom in a nursing home. And she's doing fantastic. I, I'm, I'm really incredibly psyched about it and see all my old school friends, my college friends, and all my other life back there. Huge fun. Amazing, amazing country. London is quite something. And it, 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 but it is, it's so many people. I mean, that's the one thing I remember from 30 or 40 years ago when I first knew it. it there, is so, there are so many people in Britain right now. It is it's as crowded as I ever. It's, they're adding almost a million people a year. That was 700,000 net last year alone. So it's, uh, it's becoming a very crowded little place. But I had a lovely time anyway. And to give you a little heads up about what's coming up on the Dishcast, we have Jennifer Burns on her new biography of Milton Friedman. We have McKay Coppins on Romney and the GOP. And we have Alexandra Hudson on the question of civility in our public life. But this week... Uh, I've been fascinated by this topic for a long time. I'm going to talk about women. That may seem odd in a way because my own life is, is not exactly a full of, of women as a homosexual male. But this book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution by Kat Bohannon is just an absolutely riveting book. It also funny as hell. I, 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 have not, I haven't read a science book that's actually made me laugh quite as often, as often as this one did. So that's kind of rare. And a kind of dry, funny humor and language that does not put you off. So if you, if you, you, you will not, you, she does not shy from words like balls and stuff like that, that some scientific writers don't. Her name is Kat Bohannon. And she's a researcher who focuses on the evolution of narrative and cognition. Storytelling, actually, which turns out to be rather interesting as part of her story. Her essays and poems have appeared in Scientific American, Mind, Science Magazines, and other publications. As I said, her new book is Eve, How the Fem Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Kat, thank you so much for, for coming. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. And we normally start by asking, where, do, where were you born and where did you grow up and how were your parents? Well, they're alive, last I heard. No, I've talked to them recently. It was a holiday, so, you know, long divorced, but so. Both from the New York area. I, however, was born in Atlanta, Georgia, because my dad uh, got a lab down at Emory. And so he went down and so did my parents' reproductive organs. And so I was born there in Atlanta, Georgia. And, and then I grew up mostly then in Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is a little suburb of the place, uh, otherwise known as the Mount Rushmore of racism. And if you haven't known what that means, do go on to Wiki. The guy who designed Mount Rushmore also built a very large monument in a grand 
granite mountain to Confederate folk, and they are larger than Mount Rushmore. And every summer they have laser shows. And so Robert E. Lee's face is actually lit up by lasers. And at some point there are fireworks. And usually Ray Charles sings Georgia on my mind, like at some point. It's a mixed race neighborhood. So that's all very interesting for people. Ray, Ray, up Ray Charles shows up to sing? No, oh, no, I don't no. believe he's alive, Andrew. <laughs> no, I didn't no, think no, so no, no, he's on a very large loudspeaker. Oh, okay, like, so Ray Charles' big... voice. Yeah, 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 and me and my friends who are not white sitting on little blankets and like eating sandwiches and like corn dogs and shit and like looking up at this like beautiful but really disturbing array of how America thinks about race or doesn't in Stone Mountain, Georgia. It's a very, very large stone monument. Look into that. Anyway, it deserves a drunk history. I don't know why they haven't yet. (laughs) Um, I want to know why I've never heard of it. Exactly. Well, you know, it's one of those monuments that you can't actually like have a fight over and move unless like you want (laughs) to blow it up like the Bamiyan monks, you know, like you can't move this damn mountain. The whole town is named for it. It is called Stone Mountain. And it is racist as hell. But there it is. It is. It was built but, uh, but, originally but by the daughters a- of the American Confederacy. And I would be, I think, officially a member if I had ever signed up. But I don't want to. So, But you're saying yeah. that the actual crowds there for the laser shows and things are a, mix, a mixed a mixture of, of course. black and white. Of course, because there's like cotton candy for kids and like a train ride and like and there are fireworks and there is music and it is Americana. And I remember it being very fun. So I was there. My dad was a research psychologist. My mother was a pianist. So I was always destined to be very weird. I've had a lot of therapy. I'm fine. I'm fine now. And uh, professionally, she she played the piano professionally. She did. Yeah, yeah. And oh. but of course, once she had kids and dad was running the lab, she pulled back and was a piano teacher. And that's how she made her money. And then when they divorced when I was five, she was teaching quite a lot. And I was eating a lot of ramen noodles. So that's just fine. But no, my father ran a lab and I was a subject long before I was a researcher. I lived again when I was a teenager. We moved all around the country after the divorce, once I was 11. And then I remember helping prep his slides for his experiments in my puberty when he was at another lab. So it was just always, there was no separation between science and art for me. It was just all my brain doing a thing. It was just and how so I was raised. Yeah. When you, when you aspired to go to college, that was, the, what, what, were you, what were your aspirations to study? My aspirations as a 16-year-old, because I started a little early, my aspirations were probably to get laid, but that wouldn't be the first time I was. My aspirations were to do interesting stuff. I was already publishing poetry. I was in some very bad bands. But I think what you're trying to ask is whether or not I wanted to go into science. Let's see. I First, I was probably rebelling, and I felt like I had just spent all of my adolescence in science, so I just pursued poetry for a long time. I got into now, the you, you still write poetry. Some verse, I did a flip into paragraphs from stanzas back in 2003 Mm. or so, which seems like a very fiscally wise move. I certainly have an agent now and I didn't before. So, you know, but it was also because I was, well, I cooked up this gig for myself as a poet in residence at Dr. Von Hagen's Plastination Lab. Have you heard of Plastination? You know, no. where they, the body worlds, maybe you've been to South Street Seaport where oh, human bodies yeah. made of plastic, but actually human okay. bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I remember, well, yeah, before yeah. it had ever toured in the US, I actually was a poet in residence at his Warhol-like 
like lab in Dalian, China, because he had left East Germany after he was accused of body trafficking, which of course he didn't do. He probably did. He didn't do. And so he went to China, which is a very unsuspicious place to have moved a thing like that after that kind of accusation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Officially, the Dalian uh, government listed the place as a mannequin factory, which is interesting because the local anatomy school exchanged free training with his body world's facility in anatomy for them working on his pieces. So I'm quite sure that the People's Republic of China were well aware of what he was doing. But anyway, so I was there and I was supposed to write a poem cycle, which is definitely a normal thing to do back in 2002, 2003. And when I came back, I just couldn't write stanzas, dude. I just... I just, yeah. So I took about a year and I ended up writing this lyric essay and I published it in this little literary journal. And that was how my agent found me. It was the first wow. prose piece I'd ever written. Well, you write beautifully, I have to say. Uh, Thank and, you. And, and, and amusingly, and it's a, there's a pace in this book that you, 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 you want to keep up with, but there's also a lot in the book. So let's, let's start yeah. at the very beginning. Let's start sort of with this great mystery of reproduction in a way, and the, this, this bifurcation in certain species between Eve and Adam, let's just call them that temporarily. And you take this back 200 million years. I do. Can you, and you take it beyond humans, so we're not yeah. just talking about the human species. We, the book eventually focuses on us, but it starts because evolution doesn't start with us, with others. Tell us about the first Eve. Mm. So I start us at roughly the dawn of mammals. So that's 200 million years ago, more or less. There are mammal-like things before then, synapsid, these uh, mammal-like reptiles. And it's hard to say exactly the moment that say, ah, this is mammal now. Okay. But 200 million years ago is about when we start our reproductive journey in a way that distinguishes us as mammals. And what I mean by that is a lot of what mammals are really as um, a type of animal is distinguished by the way in which we reproduce, right? It's not simply that we have these little bones in our ears that separated from a reptilian jaw, but you can go have fun with that if you're into that sort of thing. The big thing that makes us what we are really is this moment in which we start lactating, and then we go on and we have weird things like placentas and so on and so forth. Yeah. Now, the these started with little, little creatures. Yes, absolutely. Because when you look in the mirror, what you're actually seeing besides your own anxiety, which is most of it, right? Certainly it is with me, <laughs> right? What you're actually seeing is, is less of a thing and more a barely contained series of events that are still happening right? Some of them are bound by your actual body, which will eventually dissolve into entropy and hence become deceased. Sorry about that. We're mortal. But it's also that there are these processes that began, these body plans that began hundreds of millions of years ago, actually really towards the dawn of life, right? But some of the things that really especially make us what we are begin at these moments where we differentiate just enough from our ancestors that we become something new. And about 200 million years ago, that started with a creature that I use as an exemplar, and that's Morganicodon. Morgi. I actually nicknamed her Morgi because the Smithsonian did on a placard, so I had permission. It was fine. And she was a little weasel-like bitch that squirreled around the feet of dinosaurs 200 million years ago. We were hardly dominant back then, we mammals. But what she did, which was so weird and interesting, is she nursed her pups, which still hatched out of eggs, mind you, and the duck-billed platypus does too, 
with a liquid secreted from her own body. Now, frankly, this is incredibly disgusting as soon as you start thinking about it, even remotely. But it was fine. It kind of worked out for us. And it did a number of really wonderful things. It did things like control where the newborns got their water. Because as we've now learned from the pandemic, aerosolized droplets are full of horrible stuff that will make you die. So are puddles of things. So if you need water when you're born, it's good to get it from your mother's body, a bit pre-filtered, if you like, rather than and the majority of what we And the majority of what we think of as, as milk is mm -hmm. actually water, right? Absolutely right. The majority of what human milk or any other kind of milk is is water. It's fundamentally a water delivery system. And then secondarily, uh, an immunological boost, actually. It helps build nascent immune systems in newborns of every mammal type. And then only later, after it is in the early stages a laxative, actually, which you'll learn all about in my book, it becomes nutrition, right? We think of it as, oh, the baby's hungry. That's actually a minor feature of what's going on when the baby nurses. And Morgie, she she still laid eggs. Mm-hmm. So Indeed she did. She she laid eggs and those eggs hatched and they attached themselves to her and got nutrients and water fundamentally. And and the milk changes a little bit over time. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. There's a lot of there's a lot of the, the that most people, if they saw the first milk that comes out of a pregnant woman, a, a woman just after giving birth, Human it women. doesn't look like milk. It looks like something else. Oh, it looks like pus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gross as hell. But, you know, fine. I guess it's fine. It is what it is. It's called colostrum. <laughs> it's, it's sort of yellowish. It's sort of thick. It's sort of alarming. It's sort of like, I don't want that coming out of my nipples. I'm sure you can relate. Don't want that. Don't want any of that. But it's part of it if you're a person who lactates. Okay, fine. And the early stages of lactation then are actually especially immuno-heavy stuff. It's both a strong laxative, which clears out the baby's intestines, gets it ready for the new guys, gets it ready for the friendly microbiome, but it's also full of immuno-agents and cells and just stuff that is good for setting up that nascent immune system, right? In many ways, that early milk is sort of the most important milk. The later milk is also important, not saying it's not, but that early milk is really, is really setting up that new body, to live in a dangerous world. And that would have been true all the way back in Morgie too. Of course, she didn't have nipples yet. So she just had weird sweaty milk patches with hairs on top, which is what the duckbill platypus does too. So picture that weird little bill, you know, somewhere in Australia with a little tongue kind of flicking out and like licking milk off of mama's tongue. Like that's, that's how they did yeah. that. And that's how we did for a long time. But now we have nipples and they are more useful. Can I ask you how when did the when did when did we devise as the let's say morgie's husband as it were or morgie's <laughs> mate right uh, uh -huh. i don't know what we call him mindy maybe oh, I know, whatever partner um, dalliance so, super fun dalliance, time what, it's hard to say what her mating strategies were you know what i mean yeah but but obviously they divide already it's just all mammals emerged into this binary that the, the, one had the eggs and one had the sperm yeah, yeah. It gets tricky. I mean, this word binary is so loaded now. You know what I mean? It like I know. means I way mean, more than it even should. I'm like, I just in mathematics, two... it's just a term, people. But in bio, well, it, it becomes, I know, I know. Well, there's I know. male and female. And, and they... And one produces, obviously, only half of them produce the milk and have the In baby, the majority of mammals, eggs. 
I, yeah, I don't mean to speak yes. over you. Sorry. Well, absolutely anyway, true. And the majority of mammals, absolutely. Now, there's all kinds of sex-based craziness and intersex and multi-sex and all kinds of things in the animal kingdom. In mammals, it's primarily male and female. There are intersex beings. And there are features of intersexuality that are less impactful on the reproductive system, right? In other words, you you can have more male or female typical features of a body even in in mammals that are essentially binary. But when, if it doesn't impact reproduction, then it's all good. It's all fun. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just a matter of like, if you need to reproduce and you happen to have an egg and another being happens to have a, a sperm, that's pretty much how we do it. That's So, so that's it. Yeah. yeah. That, that that's what that's what I'm talking about. Sperm yeah. into womb. That's that's the that's yeah. what I, I whatever words you use. That's sort of that's yeah. what. It, now at some point too, these little morgi evolved to actually not lay eggs, which yes. is the other extraordinary thing. That yes, that, that the female of the species actually started incubating. I don't know whether that's the right word, but the babies were inside right, yeah. her body. Yeah, inside her actual body. I now, know. I know it's crazy. When did that happen? When did that start to happen? Oh, dude, it's not just crazy. It is batshit crazy. This is a very dangerous thing to do um, yeah. because inevitably every being evolves to uh, seek resources and compete for those resources and try to survive, right? So if you have something hatching in your freaking body, then that thing is competing for resources inside your body and your body is the source of those resources. Okay. So that is, so then you have to start thinking about the uterus as not simply an organ, but an environment. And that's where things get real cray. And it has massive knock-on effects throughout any body that happens to have a uterus, right? And those differences are long evolved because for example, the modern human placenta like all placentas, but more so for the ones that happen the way we do, which are super crazy invasive, they penetrate all the way down to the maternal bloodstream. So that's hmm. that's a whole hell of a lot, right? That's some that's some HR Geiger. That's some alien shit right there. Okay, hmm. so if that's the case, then that is going to downregulate the maternal immune system. Why? Because otherwise, the uterus would very rightly see this thing as an invader and attack. Okay, <laughs> defend itself as well it should, as it deserves to, right? In the so way the that. The placenta protects the baby from being destroyed by the mother. It also protects the mother? It's actually a combination. So the placenta okay. is one of the only organs in the animal world that is actually made out of effectively two different organisms, well before one of them technically becomes its own organism, right? So the it's made of two plates. Picture two dinner plates on top of each other, yeah? The basal plate is against the uterine wall, and that is made of uterine tissue. That's made of the mother's genetic stuff. That's her body made that side. The top plate of the placenta is made of embryonic tissue, right? So it's one organ made out of two. And the embryonic side is does a number of different things to downregulate the maternal immune system overall throughout the can body. You, can, you, can you define that term downregulate? I'm not quite sure I understand it's, what that means. If you can picture the immune system as running at a certain heat, a certain volume, if you like, uh -huh. right, which is a, a sort of degree of inflammatory responsiveness, a degree of uh -huh. speed of response, how many immunocells are being ge generated to fight a thing, all of the different ways an immune system might respond to a, a signal of an invader. Yeah. What the embryo and embryonic tissue and especially the placenta seems to have a number of different ways of turning down that heat mm. and effectively making the maternal body temporarily 
accept is too strong a word, actually, temporarily coexist with with this gestating baby. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, for something in someone's body to be the function of two different beings. <laughs> Very right? much it's so. Sort of merge. I, I, I can't imagine any other any other scenario in which that might be the case. Um, oh no, I do actually have okay. one. I can tell you. Okay. Yeah, sure. Your intestines. Your intestines are hella oh, right. crowded with other beings. Effectively, That's true. The That's number of cells in your intestinal walls versus the number of my in your microbiota, like. You are actually already many. You not only contain, but you are multitudes, yeah? The boundaries of the organism are blurry. That's an increasing mm. way that we think about biology. But mm. maybe that's a bit high-minded to go into right now. But mm -hmm. it is true, at the very least, that when it comes to how we do reproduction, we mammals, and especially we human beings, the placenta itself is both an invader and a collaborator. But I would say deeply a competitor. That's a thing that we don't often talk about because we have this idea of femininity as being this sort of warm, gentle, maternal cushion of love, you know, that we're just kind of, we're here to cuddle. I don't know. I don't know what it is about female bodies, but we're here to somehow to take care of others. But what's actually going down in the uterus uh, when it's pregnant is, is we're trying to survive. And so is the offspring. And they're actually competing for resources. So it's more of a detente. It's really more like trench warfare down there that lasts roughly nine months. And you don't want either side to win or lose because that's actually where things get dangerous. If the placenta draws down too much, you have massive metabolic problems on the maternal side. If the maternal side is winning, big quotes around that, but you know, the maternal side is too effective at fighting off an invader, then not only do you get things like miscarriages, but you have fetal growth restriction. You have all kinds of bad things if your aim is to have a live-born baby, right? So really, if you think about the uterus as this environment, if you think about the uterus as this site of conflict, it really gives us better models for how we go about reproducing and for why female bodies are just so weird. There, it's also, I mean, for me, it's always just been amazing, which is sort of amazing that there's a human being inside another human being. But obviously, it's also amazing that only half the human race actually go through this ordeal. And it is very dangerous in so many ways. Yeah. Can you elude, and, and childbirth historically has been extraordinarily dangerous in ways that are hard to replicate elsewhere in the animal kingdom. Am I, am I correct about that? You're absolutely right about that, Andrew. And I think it's fine that you haven't had to go through that. You can still build enough of an understanding. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, really, having done it myself a few times. No, it's absolutely true that human reproduction is longer and more dangerous and more prone to crippling complements uh, than it is for most other primates except for the squirrel monkey, and we feel bad for her. Actually, it's true for most other, most other mammal. It's, the, it's our pregnancies and our births and our postpartum recoveries that are just pretty much garbage. They're terrible. And the reason we don't notice that, of course, isn't just like, oh, sexism, wave the flag, sexism. No, no, no. I mean, yes, sexism. But no, mostly it's just that, well, it, we all go through it, so it must be fine. There are 8 billion people, so it must be fine. But no, 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 no. This is actually terrible. Something can be normal and also be terrible at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the central the reason. Pain, that... the, the, the agony that, that my sister went through, for example. Mm. And I just, and the, the fact that so many, that it was, could be fatal in a, r a ridiculously large number of cases in the past before we had 
proper medicine to do that. How did how did women originally give birth? Well, I just want to bracket before okay, we go into sure. deep time that actually it is still incredibly dangerous for many, many women in the world. We talk about the past as if, oh, well, that's nothing. Many, many women in the world do not have access to this thing we call awesome modern gynecology. Many right. women in the world live very far away from anything like a maternity ward, you know, and absolutely many, many women die in childbirth. Many more offspring, human offspring die in early phases of life, some of them due to birth complications, some of them not. So actually, it continues to be dangerous. It's also true that even with our really wonderful modern gynecology, of which I am a great beneficiary, I would actually be very deceased without modern medicine. So very, so many times over. My uterus has not been an easy road. So yes, even with the best circumstances, because I have plenty of money, thank you, and I have white privilege, I have all the things, okay? And even I, of course, had a massive hemorrhage and they rolled in the crash cart, okay? Thank God they had it. The thing is, is that it's when birth complications do develop, and this is this gentle term we use, we call them complications. It is true for anyone who is pregnant right now and listening to Andrew's wonderful podcast. If you are pregnant, everything's probably going to be fine. Let's turn down your anxiety. It's all good. Just go to your prenatal appointments. You'll be okay. More than likely, you'll be fine. Take it seriously, but you'll probably be fine. Let me do that. But it's also true that when these complications develop, they tend to develop pretty quickly. Like we, all those prenatal appointments aren't just to keep the baby alive. It's actually to keep you alive if you're a pregnant person. So they, ha we have these markers that we look for across that prenatal period, but it can happen really fast. You can develop preeclampsia and then eclampsia really fast. You can have dangerous things happen really fast. Right? Can you, can you define that? What you just said, pre, pre, pre what? Preeclampsia. So it is a condition that is surprisingly common for how dramatic it is. You tend to, it can cause massive organ damage. It's a fundamentally a metabolic problem. Your body is basic. We're not entirely sure everything that causes it. Some of it I go into in the book. It seems to be deeply tied to that, that competition between the placenta and the maternal body, but it's not something anybody can actively regulate or control. It's just you develop it or you don't. And there are things that one can do to help you survive it in the baby and so forth. But it can cause kidney damage. It can cause liver damage. It shoots your blood pressure way through the roof. It can cause strokes. It can cause, let's just say it's not great. Okay. And it's something that happens to a number of women. Um, are any of these complications due to the fact that we are, as a species, dedicated to, are, to, to advancing through intelligence? The, the, the one theory I've heard is that, that, that because intelligence, the, the bigger brains created just a, a critical advantage to those families or those people that had, that the brain got bigger vis-a-vis -vis the body and therefore birth was harder. Because the the, 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 the the simply the baby brain grew faster than the woman's body could evolve to allow it to exit easily, is that, or is that you a know, total wives' tale? I'm hearing a few different things that I know from the research and what you're asking, and it is a smart question. I think there are two different things. So there's the the expensive organ hypothesis that your brain is a little bit like a sports car that lives in your head. It right. needs a hell of a lot of gas and it's incredibly buggy and breaks all the time. And the exhaust is always running, but it just sits in your head like a garage you never wanted. So enjoy that. Enjoy being conscious. It's great. So, so which is to say that to build brains the way we do, some say, 
oh, well, this is a very expensive thing to build. It's a difficult thing to build. You have to build a lot of it in the womb and then on that long trajectory of childhood afterwards, right? So if that's, and of course you need that bigger skull too. So that means that makes birth difficult. That makes the metabolic load of pregnancy a bit heavier, trying to build something that's expensive fundamentally, biologically to build. And then that goes on and, and forth into things that nobody ever wanted, <laughs> you know, in reproduction. Sure. So I've heard of that. Absolutely. I Do I think that that is right? Hmm. Well, I'm just I trying think, to understand yeah. why humans seem to be different than most other mammals. That's the, that's the, uh, uh, that's, yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. I'm interested in. But, mm -hmm. but if, if there's no, if we don't have an answer to it, but I, I think that theory struck me as, you know, reasonable. I, I have no way of judging it. No, no, no. And indeed, people who are, you know, studying encephalization, in other words, how big our heads got over the course of the fossil history. It's absolutely true that we got bigger brains over the course of the hominin line. This is not a myth. This this happened and it wasn't all of a sudden. In fact, it was kind of bursty over deep time. There wasn't one moment we got hella smart. In other words, it was actually millions right, and millions of years. Right, right, yeah. Right. And it was not all at once either. It was again, up and down, up and down, kind of bursty. And in fact, some now are saying that our brains might be shrinking slightly. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Who knows? Okay. This is, you know, evolution is deep time. It is true that we're always tempted to say the moment we become human is the moment that something that we like about ourselves happens. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm always very suspicious of that because mm -hmm. those kinds of stories, those, you know, human beings are so special stories are often the first ones that get discarded in science because we go and we test it. And we're like, oh, yeah, we're not so special. Turns out. Okay, fine. What yeah. I was thinking coming at me in a way is stuff yeah. I was taught as a very young kid in Catholic school, which is there's something called the curse of Eve. Oh, yeah. I and went the, through catechism. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you know, you know what I'm talking about. Basically, <laughs> period pain, traumas of labor, all, all these excruciating experiences that women go through. And, and they can be very complicated. People have all sorts of issues with their menstrual cycles, they have, they have endometrio. I mean, it's, you, yeah, yeah. You, in ways that men just don't, you know, we have it so bloody easy most of the time. Um, Except your prostate, though, but we can get to that later. <laughs> let's, let's leave my prostate out of it for, temporarily. Sure? Okay. <laughs> but yes, our prostates do have some problems. But compared to the array <laughs> of, 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 of syndromes that women have to endure, can we have now boobs? Let's talk about boobs. Cause, sure. Because this is also fascinating to me. Well, okay. not, obviously, it's a homosexual, not that fascinating. But, but they exist. They exist. They're amazing. I don't know. I, I now, around. I guess there's a bra involved. Yeah. Why do... Why do <laughs> so the breasts, they're basically, right, to as a support system for the production of milk. Am I right about that? Well, I think essentially, it depends what we mean by breasts. Now, mammary right. tissue... 100%. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And we have an eve of, of lactation. And that indeed is is Morgie, or she's my exemplar. She's an exemplar genus. There are a lot of different species of Morgana. But, down, but, but what, yeah. when, did the nipple, when did the nipple emerge, this crucial we thing? We don't know. Because the reason we don't know is because it's a soft trait. There are no fossilized nips. There are no, you know, like we don't know when the helicopter. So you have to kind of infer according to like, well, all of these extant, all these living species that have nipples, they probably come from a central root. We estimate when that was. But the real, the real takeaway I can just tell you is we don't know. But we do know what all the advantages are of having a nipple. 
The fundamental advantage of having a nipple is that it's a docking seal. And then you have all the advantages of a vacuum, a sealed environment in which you are transmitting material from one body to another, as opposed to just licking it up in this kind of crowded, microbe-filled space, which is the lower abdomen. Now you can actually- How does the vacuum work? Oh, the vacuum's super fun. So you probably read this in the book. This is called the Upsuck, U-P-S-U-C-K. Yes. So, this is the formal term, thank you. And, I know. Yeah, yeah. So I've got to be in another context, but, but, but go ahead. Which may indeed also, depending on the rate of sucking, work similarly. It's just tricky. We can get into that later. So with the nipple, though, for your read, since they can't see my hands, right? So for your <laughs> listeners, picture a human breast or whatever you feel comfortable picturing. There's a nipple at one end. Okay. So the baby, if it's a newborn, is going to latch onto that thing and the the lips are going to kind of flare out around it. Quite a lot of the breast is drawn into the mouth. It's as invasive as you can imagine, right? And the tongue's on the bottom of that thing. And so by sucking in its cheeks, it's going to create a vacuum, that baby, to help draw down the milk. And it's going to roll its tongue underneath the bottom of that nipple to kind of kind of draw that wave of milk down the back of its throat. But the trick is, is because that tongue is rolling, you are moving the focus of the vacuum back and forth. And what that means is you're creating a tide, very similar to what you might see on the shore. And what do you get with a tide? You get an undertow. So you get a wave of milk coming on over the top of the tongue and drawn back down the, th the throat, suck, suck, swallow, suck, suck, swallow. But the thing is, is because tides do have an undertow, the undertow then sucks the baby's spit back into the mom's boob through the nipple, where it then distributes all the way up through the ductal work of the mammary tissue and is read like some kind of ancient code by immunoagents and sensors which change the milk to suit. If the baby is sick, the milk changes. It changes its amount of cortisol. It changes its hormone profile. It changes its ratio of proteins to sugars. It helps the baby heal. Now, my baby was terrible at latching and decided to chew instead of suck. So I had a very intimate relationship with a breast pump, which I sometimes had to do on an airplane going across the country. So I have skills is what I'm saying. And it's fine. Fed is best. But in the long evolved context in which breastfeeding happened, you had that upsuck, which provided obvious advantages. Um, in that way, the mammary tissue with a nipple is a two-way communication system as much as it, is, as it is a delivery system. That's incredibly interesting. And uh, weird I mean, and gross, but great. And weird, but brilliant. I mean, as a way to, to take care of your infant, you're not just feeding them, you're figuring out what they need to avoid certain infections, and you, this all happens without you ever thinking about it. Also, the, 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 baby, the baby human has, obviously, first of all, this intense relationship with the mother, right? I mean, you're suckling oh, yeah. close. And in fact, another thing you pointed out that, of course, I'm not super, super familiar with is that, is that breasts come in different, you can have different sizes. Uh, they're not all perfectly formed into the perfect perk symmetry that and that oh, in yeah. fact and the fact that the, the the left breast if i'm is the one that 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 infants most latch onto and that is a that is a position where they can see their mom's face better is that is that am i correct 
actually, yeah. So across primates, actually, you have what's called this cradling preference, and it's a left cradling preference. So across primates, the newborn suckles a bit more on the left. They tend to be carried more on the left, and it corresponds to the more expressive side of the face in most social primates, especially. We know the most about humans, of course, but uh, we know in other primatology as well that there is this left cradling bias, this left nursing bias, and it does seem to strongly correspond with these early phases of social learning where you're staring up at the more expressive side of the face and receiving it with that densely social reception side of the brain, if you like. Mm-hmm. So so all of these things are long evolved. But actually, I can also give you a joke you can use anywhere you like. It doesn't exactly have a punchline, but you'll see. So the left breast, like the left testicle, tends to be slightly larger. Actually, it's just part of the body's chirality. It's the, how we build the two sides of our bodies, both in the womb and then on those long tr- developmental trajectories. Yeah. So what that means, of course, because gravity is that they both then, the testicle and the breast, tend to hang slightly lower. So technically, most of us are hanging a little to the left. So... That's all yours now. You can do with that what you like. (laughs) Yeah. So we do have that left bias. We do have that left bias. And I do think that it's the thing about social species like ours are we are very clever. We social apes. We are so, so, so clever. And we are so super, super, super social, which is a deep part of why we're clever and how we became clever, actually. A lot of that brain development, most theorists think, is deeply tied to our sociality. We weren't just social. We became hypersocial and more and more became a bit of a runaway train, if you like. So our early childhood, actually throughout our childhood, we are closely tracking any social signal at all. We can't help it. All of us. We're just doing that. And you have this period of childhood development where you're staring at one face in particular and you're talking to this one person in particular, more than likely, because you're a mammal. Now, Males are perfectly capable of helping children learn language and develop socially and what have you because we are hypersocial. It takes a village, no, really, for our species, it does. But it is true that if you're a breastfeeding newborn, you're getting a lot of that contact directly from the body that birthed you. You just are. Yeah, that's just that's how that is. There is something. I just visited my mother in a nursing home mm-hmm. back in England. That's partly why I went. And she always reminds me that you came out of me. You know, and like thanks, it, mom. You've told me. I'm aware. I know, I know. But but there's something, there's something magical about the connection between a mother and a child that 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 is unique. It's different than a father and a child. It, it, and also that the mother ta- often, and you, you have this, you have the chapter on voice, which is also fascinating to me. Hmm. Tell me about the, the the mother and how she communicates vocally with her with her newborn and how how that might have had something to do with the origins of language. So so we've already established, right, just even in this last podcast, that, okay, milk itself is a two-way communication platform. You have a lot of communication that happens well before you have anything like language. And that's true in a lot of mammals, right? And I mean, let's face it, I have never ingested a pint of my father's body fluid in a day, and I'm fine with that. That is a good thing. Right. So, but my mother, well, yes, yes, I must have. I don't remember it, thank God, but I must have. So, but then it's also true that even during that long breastfeeding period, which for most human beings in hunter gatherer societies lasts many years, actually, for my son and I, it was a, a tempestuous six months and that was fine. But, but, you know, in, out in the world and deep in our past, our species is 300,000 years old and definitely didn't have rubber nipples. It would have been mostly breastfeeding and probably for many years. That's also the same period that we're learning language. 
Yeah. Now, I think Steven Pinker is absolutely right. We have a language instinct. The human brain is built ready-made and hungry even for language. It will develop it in any possible way that it can from any direction. However, it is also true that we speak to babies in special ways using parentese or motherese. It is true that there are primary caretakers, which for the majority of our species continue to be the birthing parent, continue to be the mother. Yeah. And during that period, that's your primary dyad, your primary communication dyad. Yeah. And so you are trying desperately to communicate with your milk beast and she is desperately trying to keep you from crying. And that desperation creates language effectively in those early years. The most cool moment, I think, is simply the moment that an infant figures out what the hell a word is. Because remember, this is code breaking. We're not born with any language. We don't even know what the hell language is. We, can, we can't even hold up our own heads. We are useless as newborns. But there is a moment in which this string of sounds gets bracketed into individual words, which is a key moment of language development. Yeah, And it's absolutely deeply tied to a breastfeeding period. You're mostly mm. learning that, not simply because your brain is ready to do the code breaking, but also because of the deep communication partnership that you have with your caretaker, which is usually your mom. Is there a reason we use baby baby voice? We don't we don't we don't say to her, how are you doing there today, little one? You're like, Ooh, you did your baby go to the baba like I like yeah. big ones. Parentheses. Mm -hmm. Where do we come up with that? Where, where did that come from? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's hard to say, actually. We don't know if this is something that we're literally born with instinct-wise, the way... Now, for a biologist, instinct is instinctive behavior is going to be something like the way a baby, when you put its... A newborn, if you put a newborn's face on a soft surface, it'll start rooting around. It'll start rolling its head around, looking for a damn nipple anywhere it can, right? That's a mm. rooting instinct. Baby mm. deer also have this. Literally all mammals have a rooting instinct when they are freshly born, looking for that, either that nipple or that milk patch, yeah? So that's instinctive. That's like a puppy that play bows, you know, pushes its paws down and wet puts its butt up in the air and wags. Like that's instinctive. That's not learned. Motherese, we don't know if it's instinctive or if it's simply that our mothers did it and theirs before and theirs before. And you just kind of carry that chain down. It's kind of hard to measure. We do know that other very vocal species have versions of motherese. They seem to have similar features of early language development, not language in their case, but early communicative development, babbling, like baby songbirds babble. That's kind of weird, but they do it much like our babies. And songbird parents, usually the fathers in those cases, because they're the, they're the main singers for most of those species, use their own version of parentese. I guess in their case, it would be fatherese, yeah, to help modify the way that they communicate with those offspring. We've seen it in other primates. We've seen it in many, many species that have it. And the things that seem to be useful about it in human beings is that it seems to, one, get the baby's attention. And the more you pay attention, the more likely you are to dump stuff into long-term memory. That's even true now, yeah, even with our adult brains. If you pay attention to a thing, it, it goes into long-term memory. So, okay. It also seems to help distinguish the borders of sounds a little bit. In other words, it may help with that code-breaking of where does a word begin and end. Who's a good baby? Baby, baby, baby. You get a lot of repetition. You get a lot of that, that stretching of a word. You get a lot of that pitch differentiation. So that's a thing that also seems to help babies start to unlock what language is made of and how your particular language might work versus others. 
and helps you then develop if you are a normally hearing person how to do so that. But even is- in sign language, there's actually parentees even in American sign language with your hands. It seems to be a way that we communicate with children. But it certainly seems true that that early communication, that very early communication is absolutely critical to a child's development. Yes. The attention, they're yes. looking they're looking for your face. They're not looking for you looking at a phone yes. or or somewhere else. It's yes. your face and it's your engagement. Yes. And it's your language. And yeah. that and, and the attention you can pay is going to reap a lot of benefits for your baby and probably for you too in terms of in terms of the bond that that you have with that is that is am i right about that the early years are absolutely critical and women presumably historically must have spent a lot of time with children right i mean which is they they're, they're less likely if they're pregnant or if they're giving birth to be going out there hunting things or foraging things i'm not saying it doesn't happen but there will inevitably be some division of labor whereby, liter- literally as figuratively, that the, the women are, by virtue of being women, going to be spending a much more time dealing with the giving birth of babies, the, the caring of babies, because the human child also is, takes mm-hmm. a long time to develop. It's not like a, a giraffe which goes plop and then it can run around and be fine. It, it's a yeah, child absolutely. That In fact, they drop constant. Giraffes drop six feet, I believe, to the ground during because she doesn't lie down to give birth, the giraffe. And and in fact, the force of impact <laughs> when that thing drops to the ground is what shocks the lungs into breathing. That's how wow. giraffes enter the world. So that's a hell of a thing. And they do sometimes break their legs on the Hi there. And that's just a compliment. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>